is that the homeless have readily admitted to me that we are the judge, juries, and executioners in encampments because they've kind of been left alone to create their own community. You leave them to their own devices and they're in the middle of nowhere. Eventually, they're going to create their own community with their own rules. This is why every encampment has a mayor. You know, most encampments have a homeless mayor that's in charge of everybody. I've personally been taken to grave sites in the middle of the woods, you know, where they showed me where, you know, the bodies are buried. If we were ever to like do some kind of infrared thing throughout the country where there's homeless encampments, where you can kind of tell if dirt, if there's been holes dug, you're going to find people buried everywhere, you know, especially in the deep woods. Hey, this is Matt Cox. I'm here with Kevin Dahlgren. He is a homeless consultant and he's got some interesting stories regarding homeless issues and it's going to be an interesting video. Check it out. So I watched that video you sent me. Um, what, like, I mean, I know we, we texted about it, but what, what happened in, in the video? Oh, um, are you, and remind me which video I know I sent you a few. Was it the, uh, the one where I was attacked or was the short documentary I made with Tyler Oliveira? No, no, this was a, this was, you had been talking to like a homeless guy and then a bunch of guys in coats came and just started beating on him. Oh, oh, right. Uh, that happened in Evanston, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And I was there assessing their homeless situation not two months ago and I was sitting with a homeless guy, a senior citizen who then got up and walked towards his bike to do something. And I heard some commotion and turned around and he was having some words with these, uh, uh, these, uh, city employees, these contracted city employees. And Really quickly, I saw it escalating. So I kind of turned on my camera thinking something bad is about to happen. And then what I sent you was this one minute, 11 second clip of these five city employees beating the hell out of this guy. And it wasn't like it was some mutual combat thing. They had thrown him to the ground, stood around him and just kicked him in the head. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't even believe it. And, uh, the whole time they're doing this, they were being very threatening and stuff. So anyway, <coughs> I was shocked, but of course, after this happened, everyone basically said, well, Kevin, this is Chicago and this is, this is just normal. And even when the police arrived, they weren't overly enthusiastic to take, uh, my report of what I had witnessed or filmed because they just said, you know, this is kind of a common occurrence. I said, well, these are city employees, not, not, not okay. No one should be on the ground and just, you know, getting their head kicked in. So the guy been there and it's no fun. Him? I don't know. They said that he possibly was trying to urinate in a corner or something. I didn't see that. All I know is that they had words and, it, and, and honestly, it doesn't matter what the words are. And it doesn't even matter if this guy started it with words. We are trained professionals to de-escalate and not get triggered and keep the emotion out of it. So when I work with, say, a homeless person, and they're just like, hey, Kevin, F you, or I'm going to da-da-da, 
It's not like I get heated and say, oh yeah, because what is that going to solve? Right. You have to be professional. They were not professional. So I could, I, it, you know, basically this was a group of people that were very poorly trained. <laughs> so, uh, so how often do you see stuff like that? The violence I witness daily all over anywhere I go, because I go in the encampments, it's very, very common. Uh, you know, there's street justice is very common on the streets. Uh, I was in, uh, bend Oregon a couple weeks ago, which is this beautiful, uh, city, uh, in Southern Oregon. And I was in the Deschutes forest where there's maybe three, 400 homeless people. And I was talking to a lady and she was camping next to a road called China hat, which goes directly through this forest. And I just simply, you know, we were talking and, and I asked her about what's it like living out here and stuff. And she said, well, uh, what happens in China hat stays six feet under in China hat. And what she's saying is, and this is a very common thing to hear is that the homeless have readily admitted to me that we are the judge juries and executioners in encampments because they've kind of been left alone to create their own community kind of like Lord of the flies in a way, you know, when there's no other supervision that's going to happen. And some encampments work, others don't, but like she was blunt because she's been living this for years and you know, she freely admits this is just the way it is. And this is why I take this job so seriously. This, you know, this, this, um, effort is, I don't believe a homeless person will ever truly get their needs met on the streets. And we can't also allow them to do things like this because everyone (laughs) deserves to be treated respectfully and to at least have their day in court (laughs) and, you know, people getting beaten up and murdered and all that other stuff is completely unacceptable. You know, I, again, I don't know the backstories of what, you know, why a lot of these people ended up like this but i don't think that matters what matters is this is not normal behavior and something this is inevitable when a community does nothing to end this homeless crisis you know when you leave them alone you leave them to their own devices and they're in the middle of nowhere eventually they're going to create their own community with their own rules this is why every encampment has a mayor you know most encampments have a homeless mayor that's in charge of everybody and not in charge, like they tell them what to do, but they're sort of like the senior respected figure of the area that ultimately makes decisions on the direction the camp, the encampment's going to go, or even sometimes the fate of the person who they think crossed the line. And so I've met, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I've just, you know, I've met dozens and dozens of mayors and they're all basically the same. It's people who have been homeless the longest who usually hold on to the, who have the most respect of the people around them. Um, so how did you get into this? Like, where were you, where were you, uh, born, raised, you know, like I'm, it's a good question. I'm, I'm 52 years old and, um, in the early 1990s, my little brother ended up on the streets of Portland, Oregon with a meth addiction. And I knew nothing about drugs. I mean, you know, I dabbled with smoking pot when I was a kid and stuff, but nothing major, not like it is these days. 
So we ended up on the streets. I was in my first year of college, not really sure in what I want to do with my life. So I was like 22, 21, 22. Uh, anyway, once he called me from the streets and I was like, oh my God, my little brother's on the streets. I invited him into my studio apartment and he lived with me for about a year and then you know, recovered and stuff. And I was very inspired by that moment of like, wow, I was able to help somebody. And then I started really paying attention to other homeless and realizing what happens when you don't have family support because he got lucky. He had me, he had my other brother who, even though at the time we weren't too happy with him for some certain reasons, because he was, you know, causing some problems and that's fine. Just, he was just young and angry. We also, he had the, he still had that family support to help him. So I started obsessively trying to understand the rest of the homeless population what happens to a homeless person without that support? Well, guess what? They stay homeless because the system wasn't really built to actually really get anybody off the streets, I noticed. And that was a rude awakening for me because when I entered the field, I was thought I was going to be surrounded by people who woke up every day ready to change the world. And mostly, you know, what I found was a high percentage of people I worked with were doing it because it was a job. And that to me was a very backwards way of looking at it because i've always thought of what we're doing homeless services or addiction should be a cause not a job cause meaning you know we should treat this like a crisis it is not a job and also have the belief that we can end this crisis so i entered the field professionally in the you know early 90s after my brother got off the streets went, you know, went back to school, just kind of studied all the right things I needed to study to have that piece of paper to get my foot in the door in various places. And then worked in that, worked in that system for about 29 years and only just recently left it. And while I think there's still good people working in the system, I've been very critical of this system that once was felt like a cause in the nineties became this multi-billion dollar industry. And it's something I've been very vocal about is it's of highly, highly profitable industry. And the fact is the longer the people stay on the streets, the more money people get. And I am very unhappy that it's become this way. So I've been very much, uh, very vocal about this problem and trying to get people to think differently about it and get people to start treating it like the crisis it is which we definitely are not doing today. Um, so what do you typically, like what is your typical, I, I hate to say day because obviously it's probably not a typical day, but what, what's your typical month like? Um, you know, like what do you do for organizations? What do you do when you go out to these places? Uh, like like how, are you making, how are you making a living? Well, I am... Currently, I'm not. <laughs> I am. I am very boots on the ground. I am a strong believer. If you want to understand a problem, you go to the problem. You immerse yourself. You spend time. Right. I absolutely hate all these, you know, so-called professionals that write books on homelessness and addiction that have no firsthand experience. It's not like you have to necessarily have been homeless or been an addict. But you need to also devote your life to being around it and, and and immersing yourself to understand that population. And it's almost non-existent. So every day, 
every day I'm in some encampment somewhere interviewing the homeless. And I've been doing this to try to then share with anyone who's willing to listen what the homeless think and what's actually going on because they've never really been given a voice. So uh, I have started doing homeless consulting. So I have been traveling a bit to different cities, you know, counties, communities that are interested and talking to me about kind of what works and what doesn't, you know? And so like, for example, I'm a big believer in boots on the ground, not just for me, but for anybody who wants to end this crisis, we're not going to end it by building multi-million dollar buildings, right? We're going to end it by doing the outreach and building that trust, building that rapport, bringing back that hope. That is like step one and the most important step, but the, uh, the step that isn't really utilized. Um, at all. It's so, for example, I interviewed just this year alone, about 150 homeless people just in Portland, Oregon, which is my hometown. And 90% told me I'm the first outreach worker to ever approach them. Ever. I mean, that's insane. So even if you don't work in homeless services, you have to assume, right? That at least there's outreach going out there and talking with them and working with them. It's not really happening. And that doesn't make any sense. And so I've been very much pushing for people to rethink what we're spending our money on and maybe diverting funds towards the actual outreach, because that is, that is where we learn the problem. And that is where we're going to kind of save the lives is once we understand it. Well, if nobody's going out and actually talking with these guys and, and, figuring out, you know, how to, you know, help with their problems to get them back, you know, into acclimated back into society, then where's the money going that is dumped into this problem? Well, a lot of it is wasted on studies, research, uh, the housing first model, which is really, that's where billions of it is spent on brand new apartment buildings uh where they will place the homeless but they will place them without any sort of ex expectations or responsibility so imagine you know you work for an agency and a person who's actively using fentanyl which is terrible i'm a drug and alcohol counselor and that's the worst thing i've ever seen right so anyway he shows up and said i want housing great so what they do is they will put him into a fully furnished apartment without any requirements of getting sober, going on meds, getting a job, following any type of rules, anything. It's just literally a low barrier. We have housed you. Now you do this thousands and thousands of times to the people who are in the field, you're going to see a noticeable difference. You're going to see the sidewalks emptied, right? Because people sometimes want that. The problem is, is we're not solving the problem. We're hiding the problem because we're not helping these individuals recover. We're simply placing them in these very expensive buildings, which by the way, they don't pay rent for for life. We as taxpayers continue to pay it. I'm the big believer in empowering an individual to the point where they become self-sufficient, which, well, which I believe is the case. 70, that can happen 75% of the time. So what do you, so what is the, what's the majority of the problem? Like, is it, is it drugs or is it mental illness or is it a common combination? 
it's a combination um in almost every community within the united states i would say about 80 percent of every homeless person has addiction issues and about 70 percent have mental health issues and of that group about 90 percent have experienced childhood trauma it's very very common you sit with a homeless person and once they build that trust a high percentage of the time nine times out of ten they're going to bring up something when there are five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve that was traumatic right and and it fundamentally affected him and it's something we're not really talking about but i've been talking to thousands of homeless over the last few decades and it's a reoccurring theme about a challenge because nobody really chooses to go to the streets Yes, there's going to be those rare occasions where a person just likes to party <laughs> and do that. But for the most part, for the most part, I've never met an addict that says, I love being an addict. They may say, I love being high because guess what? Being Getting high feels good because of the dopamine. It's no different than drinking three glasses of wine, right? So there's a difference. You can feel good, but it doesn't mean they're okay with it. It just means they're doing it because they're trying to fill a void. And that void is usually the trauma. So again, it's a co-occurring disorder where there's a lot of mental illness and chemical dependency, and one just feeds into the other. And this is something we really need to talk about openly rather than saying that all homeless people are on the streets due to, say, affordable housing issues. And while that certainly is a small piece, it's not the big piece. But that seems to be the narrative is that most homeless are only there due to external stressors, not internal stressors, like the mental illness and the uh, chemical dependency. External meaning I got in a tight spot and I can't pay my rent. And while that certainly certainly is the case, uh, in many cases, it's just not the, it's not the most common reason. Buried by the US government and ignored by the national media, this is the story they don't want you to know. When Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, no one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government, money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Services Fund, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began working to build the largest private militia on the planet, over one million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is, had the US government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity. The bizarre, true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination. Available now on Amazon and Audible. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I, uh, I actually have a, a buddy that has continually relapsed and if it weren't for his family, you know, mm -hmm. and friends, uh, 
just, I mean, literally it's like, there have been times he's definitely been homeless, like, but very briefly, you know, when I say, I mean, like sleeping in his car, sleeping behind a 7-Eleven, but you know, they, he gets into a program, um, goes to the, uh, uh, goes to the Red Cross or wait, what, what do they call it? Um, the Salvation Army or what's the other one? Goodwill or mm-hmm. they've got just different, um, programs. And he's even been there where he stayed for like 18 months where they gave him a job and he stayed there and actually kind of worked there. And then he got out and he just, it, as he gets older and I've known this guy my whole life. I mean, there have been times when he, and it's all, all addiction. Um, there have been times when he went years, did great for three, four five years and then relapsed. And I noticed that as he's getting older, it's getting worse. Mm. Like he can't, you know, those, 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 those times of sobriety are getting, that gap is going from, you know, five years to four to three to, well, you know what I'm saying? It, 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 it down to the point where it's like, he'll get sober for on his own a few months in a program, maybe 90 days, you know, six months, or, you know, maybe six months. As soon as he's off on his own, got a job back on his feet, he didn't last a month or two. And, and, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what it is. And I know I've, I've definitely had some, some interactions with homeless people in it. And to me, it always seemed like mental illness. Um, but in his case, it's not mental illness. It's, it's, it's addiction. Uh, I, I just wonder, you know, it, I wonder what the problem is. Cause I've been to, so I've been to LA twice in the last couple of years and I've been to San Francisco in the last few years. And it's, it's horrible. You know, the, the inner cities. A lot of these major cities have decriminalized drugs. Right. And while your friend is in desperate need of intervention, a lot of these cities have a strong belief that he should have that right to use. And how dare us try to stop him? Because it's called bodily autonomy, which is a more progressive way of thinking about things. Uh, that a person should have a right to do whatever they want and how, how dare we suggest otherwise. And that's why we're kind of in this crisis too, is because there's a strong, strong social justice philosophy about why a person is homeless or is using. And that's what kind of makes my job very challenging. So I don't know what city your friend lives in, but I think there's a very good chance he lives in a community that strongly supports uh, the decriminalization of drugs. No, he lives in Tampa. <laughs> That's not what's happening. I mean, he's okay. So in that, so, so he's East coast. Well, cause I'm the West coast guy. So Seattle, San Francisco, Portland, San Diego, that's a very big piece of it. So it could be in his community. He's not simply supported in the right way, or maybe he's just not ready to accept the help either. No, I think it's the combination of those two things. I think one, it's he's he's not ready. He gets ready. He knows what. To, first of all, he knows what to say to get help. Like he's got the system down, and he's got family that just keeps pulling him up, pulling him up, pulling him up, pulling no matter what. And you know, the few times that you know we've spoken, I've been like, you know, don't help him. Let him be homeless. Let him let him hit bottom. He he knows what to say to get you to help him and he will clean up for a few weeks or a month or two and he'll go right back to it. Like 
Yep. Um, and good. That is the advice I give family. And you are spot on, Matt, because the fact is it's difficult, but sometimes you have to let the person hit bottom because if a family will always take care of them and then they continue the same behavior year after year after year, you're not really doing any good. You know, they have to sometimes get cut off. And of course, then there's the fear of like, well, what if he dies? Well, he's dying anyway. I hear that. Dying anyway. And you need to know that. And it sounds harsh, but sometimes a person has to hit bottom. I mean, I have talked to countless family members where they now like, and I'm talking, these are people now in their eighties and nineties saying my 60 year old son has been, you know, I've been taking care of him my entire life or 70 year old son. I'm like, Oh my God, it's time to just say no. And she's like, but I'm a scared he's going to die. I'm mean, like, yeah, but you have barely kept him alive his entire life. And he knows every single time he makes a mistake, he can always come back to you. And you know what this has done? This is, this is taking your life away is what it's done. She spent her entire life worrying about her kids. And this is very common. So I try to advise parents like, look, Tough love is sometimes the best type of love, right? Because when you say that, yeah, I because I've said that many, many times. Like you know, you don't understand tough love. That's the problem. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's funny about um, his sister because his dad's just done with him. His sister, I you know she she is very big on what if he dies? I'd never forgive myself. And I'm like, l- l- let me explain something. I'm like, you've got two kids, an elderly father. I said, listen, you can only save so many people. I said, and sometimes it's a matter of just, it's triage, you know? Sure. If you could dedicate him, but do you, are you going to put him before you put your two kids, your, your elderly father, who's been there for you your entire life? Like at this point it's sink or swim. And this mm-hmm. guy, you know, I mean, you're doing more damage. I said, you're doing more damage by helping him at this point. Yep. And this is the thing too. Like he's been in and out of programs. He's been to rehab over and over. He's been in the Salvation Army multiple times. Like it's, it, I, and I even told her, I said, I said, look, I would have some sympathy if it was mental illness, but it's and, not. It's addiction. And, and the fact is, if he has been doing this for this many years, this is manipulation. Oh, yeah. He's good. He's good at it. He knows exactly what he's doing because he's, because he's, you know, he's pulling their heartstrings and it's effective. And I will tell, sometimes tell the family, like you are being manipulated and this is what an addict will do. And they need to sometimes just, you know, take, you know, get serious, accept the tough love and do what's necessary. And it's a shame that she doesn't see that. And I understand why, because the love is attached. That's why sometimes it's easier for me to do my job because when I'm working with a person and this is my client, this is the family member, and I can very bluntly say, you're manipulating your mom, right? And mom, you need to stop, right? Because it's easy for me to do, but I'm trying to help both of them. You know, I mean, it's I'm doing it because I see how they're basically, it becomes extremely codependent. It's an extreme codependent relationship. And that is a problem. And it just, it hasn't done any good for him. I mean, I have personal experience with my family where, you know, we basically, you know, took care of our uncle till he drank himself to death when he was 59 years old. And his entire life, 
you know, the family continuously kind of bailed him out. And, you know, and so I loved my uncle, but I just always, I didn't, I never respected him because I just, even when I was 12, 13 years old, I just saw like, come on. Right. And so he ended up dying when I was in my maybe late thirties, but it's just was so frustrating to see the family and some of the family, you know, were like, nah, I'm done. But the rest of ones would just take care of him over and over and over again. Right. And it's a very common thing to do, but you know what? It never helped him. It never, never helped him because ultimately at the end, he ended up drinking himself to death. And when we found him, he was just completely naked lying in a lying in a, a pile of trash. And it's sad, but that is the reality. And so tough love is sometimes the best thing you can do for a person. Yeah. I, I was, yeah, the manipulation is, it's funny. It's, it's funny too, because like the, he is such a nice guy. Like I, I, you know, some of these guys are so, they're such nice guys, which is make, you know, it's even harder. It's like, you know, he, he is a nice guy. He's also a guy that's manipulative and, you know, he's got, you know, major issues and he's bringing you down and he's depressed. And it's so, um, I wonder what the, with the exception of building a massive project, housing these people, which all, which you're saying, you know, isn't the solution. Like, and you're saying outreach is the solution. You think 75% of the time you could probably what reacclimate them back into society. So well, not only uh, that, but make them self-sufficient. Right. With yeah. some, and would you, would you, would you say, would you say, get them into, uh, um, addiction or, you know, uh, programs yes. and then, and, and then what have some kind of, a uh, social worker that keeps an eye on them for several years. Absolutely. And- it, it's not like they're going to do it on their own. It's not like I'm saying, you know, pull up your own pants and just get a job. Right. right. It's not that easy. They need a lot of support. These are very complex individuals, but by empowering them to reach their fullest potential, to giving them the opportunity to succeed, uh, and working with them every single day, they can become self-sufficient. And if you do this, you no longer need those apartments and all the other things because the system has basically sent the message is that the homeless don't know how to take care of themselves. They're unable to ever recover. We need to take care of them for life. And I disagree because I have worked with hundreds of people that I, when I first met them, they were the biggest hot mess you've ever seen, right? I mean, like screaming in the middle of traffic in their underwear. And now they have jobs and are thriving and doing really well. They just had reached terrible low points in their life and it's our job is to find that small piece of humanity still left in them and uh, help them grow again and that's what they're that's the difference between enabling and empowering we have to empower these people what we've done instead is we've enabled the homeless to the point of dependency where now it's not that they want the food they now need the food they're waiting for us to feed them. They're waiting for us to take care of them. They're waiting for us to house them. And it's no different than this the friend that says, I'm waiting for my family to take care of me over and over and over again. And he's going to be completely okay with this to the day he dies if something doesn't change. You should show your uh, show your friends this video after we after this, after we talk. Oh, listen, I've... 
talk to this guy until he's blue in the face. And he's so good. He's, he's like, you know, I know you're right. You're right. It's like, stop, stop it. Don't do that to me. Well, <laughs> you got to, Matt, I mean, I watch you. You got a BS meter. You, you yeah, oh, yeah, I You're like, Matt. I work for me. I'm like, you know, just stop, stop doing the whole telling me exactly what I want to hear. Um, what, what I was going to say, do you ever, do you ever watch soft white underbelly? Uh, yes. Mark Leda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, yeah, sorry that, yeah, go on. I love that stuff. No, no, I was going to say he's, he's amazing. And you know, have you ever seen the videos of him walking through? Cause I did a, an episode with him. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was interviewed by him and, you know, prior to going out to L.A. and and meeting him, I had watched several of the episodes. Some of them I, I just can't watch. You know, my my wife will watch 10 of them in a row. Mm-hmm. Can't get enough. And I'm like, it's it, I can't watch them. It's depressing. It's you know, and she mm-hmm. just can't get enough to, of watching these things. And I, I just can't. Um but I had watched several, and what was so funny about that is I remember listening to these people's story and every stories, and every once in a while you could hear like sirens or someone in the background screaming or cars, you know, screeching. And then I went out to LA and he picked me up and I we drove to Skid Row because mm-hmm. that's where his uh his studio is. I had no idea. Like I thought. He, I remember watching it. And I remember thinking, "Oh, he throws in sound effects." You know, no, no, no. Just outside the door are people fighting and screaming and sirens and and everything. Yep. And if you see him walk through, I mean, he's gone through hell. Um, just just doing the videos and uh, you know, being down there. He's been robbed yep. multiple times. He's invested in many, many uh, of the people that he's that have come to him and and pled for help. Um, he's put them in in uh, hotel rooms and in apartments. He's, you know, some of them have just I'm, I'm not going to say bled him dry, but you know they have just milked him for money until he finally just gives up on them. And he's like, yeah, it's this. It's, um, it it it's definitely a situation where you're right. You can't just throw money at the problem. And you know why? Because if money were the solution, we would have solved it by now. Right. Important to remember that. We have spent billions of dollars, yet the crisis grows every year. So I, and by the way, and that to me is always the red flag to anyone who doesn't work in social services and is watching this. Anytime you hear an elected official, we just need more money. Nope. That means they either don't understand the problem or they do understand the problem and realize we're going to continue to ask for money because. We're not really there to fix it. So stop talking about the money. You know, it's, you we the, have a lot. You think the funds are there. They just need to be reallocated. Oh, yeah. I truly believe that. Yes, maybe up front, if like, say, miraculously, the government said, this is a crisis. We need to fix this today. If that's the case, we need 10 times as many detox facilities. We need 10 times as many recovery, mental health, all that stuff. Up front, yes, if somehow we all came together in this magical moment and said, we're going to get everyone out the streets. Up front, that's going to be very expensive the first year or two. But if you treat it like a crisis, that crisis will end. 
And after that two plus year period, guess what? Nobody's on the streets anymore. Everybody recovered. And then all we have to focus on now is retention and prevention. Make sure people never return to the streets again and prevent them from do as, doing so. So yes, I do think we have enough money right now. Um, so you realize like, like prisons are just filled with people with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've actually, anybody who's ever watched this, uh, you know, my, uh, you know, my interviews has probably heard me talk about the multiple guys with mental problems. Matter of fact, in Coleman, in the facility I was at at Coleman, so they have, they have 12 units. There's like three buildings and four units in each building. So there's 12. They have an, a, a one unit that's got over 150 guys in it that just have mental problems. So, wow. you know, that, that's, that's, you know, one twelfth of the, that population that I, listen, a ton of other people do, but they're functional. You can be functional, have mental illness in prison and be functional because you're, you're told what to do, where to go. Other inmates will help kind of maneuver you, you know, Hey, you got to get to your cell. Hey, you got to do this. Hey, you got, you know, they'll kind of help structure your day. But some of the guys are just so unstructured. And I, I remember it, I mean, there's multiple stories, but this one inmate, they called him Mr. Freeze he had narcolepsy, mm. extreme narcolepsy. And he had gotten himself, he was addicted to like a, um, I want to say crack cocaine. And he ended up in state prison. And there was no, in Florida in state prison, it's very hot and there's no air, air conditioning. They just have fans. So he, he hated it. And he told his cellies, he, he, he wanted, you know, he hated it there. They said, he said, I don't know why they don't have air conditioning. And his cellies were like, oh, you want to go to federal prison, they have air conditioning. You should get yourself moved to federal. I mean, just messing with him. You have to commit a federal crime. He said, and, and they'll move you to a federal prison, which isn't necessarily the case. And so he writes a letter to president Bush mm. and threatening to kill him, you know, kill him, his whole family. I remember he said he wanted, he was going to uh, rape the dog. Uh, um, and I remember thinking that that was a nice touch. Um, you know, you know, just it's bizarre. The, the guy was just a, men, a, a a complete mental case. I mean, he, there was no way you could have a conversation and not know there's a serious problem. Mm-hmm. Well, the Secret Service, they come and they they question him. They indict him. He's brought to federal court. He's given, I think, I want to say seven years or something for writing a letter about killing the president that he couldn't possibly, even if it was really his intent, and they knew what his intent was. I think the judge had even said, I understand what's happening here and what you were going for, but it is illegal, blah, blah, blah. Even if he had, had was able, even if that was his intent, this guy couldn't get himself to Washington. He couldn't get himself a gun. He couldn't have pulled off anything that he said in that, in that letter. They still gave him six or seven years and he ended up in federal prison after he did his state sentence. And, um, he was in this unit and, you know, like that, like it it seems like to me, prisons are, are the, the, the mental wards that no longer really exist for these people. Like the system just wants to throw them away. And, you know, I mean, granted, it's not as bad as, you know, Nazi Germany where they're just executing them, but instead you're just locking them up forever. Like they're not helping these guys. 
although except it's very profitable to do so. You know, uh, the homeless industrial complex benefits from a homeless person. The prison industrial complex benefits from people in prison. Right. Right. And I hate to say that, but it's like, it's true. And for me, because I, I get threatened all the time, right? It's like, I mean, I'm sorry, Mr. President, give me a break. Six, seven years. That's insane. Right. A mentally ill person writing a stupid ass letter. I mean, that just bothers me. It's like, we all know it was a mental health thing. That person should be in every treatment, not being not in prison. It's not like he's going to get any better. Right. I mean, well, again, I get, I where that do doesn't make any sense. But where right? do you send them? Where do well, you that's that's the problem. Is a lot of our so for example for him, if he's severely mentally ill, is ill, a lot of these state hospitals shut down. And so, where do you think they went? They went to the streets. Right. Uh, did, so I live in Oregon. Oregon is ranked last place in America, last when it comes to mental health treatment. Uh, we are last, so that makes it very challenging for me because we have a serious amount of mentally Ill, Ill people on our streets. But that you ask a good question: is divert the funds towards treatment and mental health services? Yeah, I was gonna say like here, like probably the most you're going to get here for, I don't think there's any place that they really can lock them down and, and give them treatment for a certain period of time. It mostly, you just get locked up, um, for like your Baker acted is, I don't know if what they call it, um, um, in Oregon, but it's, well, it's either they'll, they'll Marchman act them or Baker act them. And Baker acting is like, it's draw. No, now that's mental illness. Marchman acted, I think, is um, drug addiction. If you're, mm -hmm. if they're afraid you'll harm yourself as a result of drugs, uh, I think I'm, or I might have them confused. Anyway, yeah, you get locked up for three days and then they release you, even though they know you've got an issue. Until eventually you commit a crime that they can lock you up, throw you in prison. Then you're in prison. Supposedly you're going to get, you're going to get counseling in prison. That's not going to happen. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. You, you, you might get some counseling, you know, but the doctors are listen. Nobody ends up at the top of their field and ends up working for a prison. Like these doc, the doctors that are there are just that they're just trying to collect their check and go home. Mm -hmm. yeah, they're not really trying. I believe that to do anything. Uh, although they the, they do have a drug program in federal prison, they they have them in state prisons too, and they're most of them are based kind of on the federal system. They have one in. In um, in a federal prison, it's called a RDAP, and and it's it really has very little to do with drugs at all. It's really, uh, it's really about um, behavior modification as far as like you know criminal thinking is concerned, and uh, it's actually a really good program. And pretty much, I'd say out of the five people that run the one in Coleman, I would say four of them are were really seriously dedicated. There was one guy who you could just he he's like he just wanted to get his check and go home. He was just like, just fill out the paperwork. I'll grade the books. Let's have a talk. Okay, everything's fine. Let's move on. He just wanted to go home. But the other doctors are, and, and DT, they call them uh, drug treatment specialists, even though you never really talked about drugs. Um, they genuinely wanted to be there. So that was actually a, a good program. I just don't know why. And I get what you're saying about, you know, the prison prisons you know um profiting it just seems to me it costs so much money 
to incarcerate someone. And it really, in, in, in comparison, it costs so little money to, to treat someone for drug addiction and mental mm-hmm. illness where that's something that's correctable. I mean, let's face it, it is uh, incarceration. You get out, you're good for a couple of years, maybe. And you go right back to prison. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a complete cycle over and over and over again, where if you kept these guys on, uh, if, if you did give them someone that could keep tabs on them, you know, just like they do in federal prison and, and most state prisons, you'll do a sentence of five or 10 years. And then you have several years of, um, supervised release, you know, or probation where you have a probation officer and they kind of keep an eye on you and where are you working and what are you doing and who are you living with and who are you hanging out with? And so after several years of that, you become so acclimated to behaving correctly, you have a, you have a better chance, you know, maybe not a great chance, but a better chance of acclimating back into society as a decent citizen. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, our society, you know, we're very big on the, uh, the band-aid solutions. We wait for it to happen rather than getting to like, say the root causes or, you know, it's the band-aid. Yeah. You're reactive. So what, so what it is, is we're, reactive not proactive exactly and we need to be more proactive and there's certainly some people out there really trying uh i had a good friend who served uh you know on and off 15 years in prison but his last prison stint he finally met this person who really changed his life uh and he had a history of addiction and stuff and basically completely changed the way his outlook and I, i'm hundred percent confident he'll never return to prison because this person changed him, but he went in and out, in and out, in and out ever since I was 18 years old. Right. And I spent thousands of dollars talking to this guy on the phone because it prisons love to charge money for those damn phones. I couldn't even believe what I was being charged. I'm like, can you just charge me a quarter? It was like yeah. $30 a call or something. And this was, I was poor. So I spent thousands talking to this guy over a decade. Anyway. So he met the, he read the person he's thriving now. So there are some systems that work and you got to, when a, when a program works, duplicate it, right? Talk about it and duplicate it because that's how, that's how we're going to fix the system. What, what is going to happen? And is, is Oregon as bad as California for homeless? Uh, It's very close. I've done a lot of outreach in San Francisco, but I would still say possibly or uh, California is still worse because I was recently in San Diego and it's something we're not really talking about much, but uh, I was there uh, with my friend and colleague, uh, uh, Kate Monroe, and I was talking about how everything's a crisis, crisis, crisis. I say that a lot, you know? And she paused for a moment. She says, you know what, Kevin? This is not a crisis. This is malicious neglect. And I'm like, oh my God, she's so right. Because we had given the government many opportunities to fix this. And so I walked around with her and I I realized she's absolutely right. This is now malicious neglect. Because we gave these people decades to solve this and it's still bad. So I was blown away when she said that very you know she now she's been doing a lot of media and stuff and she's a local leader there kate monroe and i'm very impressed with her so but 
that really made me think, realize that we need to start kind of going on the attack <laughs> and talking about, you know, who has failed this, you know, how have we failed these people because we can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So yeah, California is quite bad. Portland, Oregon, uh, you know, Bend, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, Salem, terrible homeless problem. But I think per capita, California is still probably still number one. I believe Oregon's number two. What's going to happen when, I mean, there's so many people leaving California. There's so many businesses that are leaving. They've got a deficit. Like what's going to happen when they, they keep pushing these progressive programs that aren't helping and now their tax base is leaving. Like it's affecting the, the people that live there. They don't want to live there anymore. Then people need to vote differently. Don't they? Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not political, but I'm saying vote the candidate, not the party vote, the candidate that has great ideas to solve this crisis and to save their community and whatever political party they're affiliated with, it doesn't matter because if they care deeply about the community, that's the person to vote for. I'm an independent. And so I vote candidate, not party always, but I will also say, you know, these progressive policies are destroying our cities, right? And that's not okay. Mm. So, what about the uh, the documentary? Well, I worked on uh, this really great, just eighteen minute piece on Portland, Oregon homelessness and addiction with a uh, Tyler Oliveira, who's a uh, does a lot of great YouTube videos. And it's we only did this a couple of weeks ago, and it's gotten a lot of attention. I think it's at just under six million views in four days now. Yeah, I don't. People, I haven't seen this because you you didn't send this to me. That, that yeah, I, I forgot what I sent you. But I when I'll do is right after we talk, I'll text it to you, and uh, you know, if you want, post the link and what we're doing here. It, yeah, no, definitely. I'll, watch I'll we'll post the link in the uh, in the description. But it's it's wild, and what's crazy is we did this over one day because <laughs> you know what? Every day is a documentary. You go out to these camps, and no matter what, you're going to see something crazy. And, you know, we talked to a lot of people uh, on the streets and addiction and really just, uh, you know, like, so for example, in the first 10 minutes of us even out there, a guy pulls a knife on us and chases us that we filmed. And it's like, you can't really make up, make this stuff up. It's like, what the heck? Now, because I had, you know, the, the small camera crew with me and they're not really used to be in that kind of situation. I was like, well, let's just walk away. But the guy kept pursuing us and I got a little frustrated. So I just basically stopped and walked up to him and stood my ground and just said, stop. He's like, I've been here longer than you. You don't get to do this. And he walked away. But I'm like, I was frustrated because I'm like, look, that's not going to solve anything. Right. And by the way, I had done outreach in that encampment. Uh, hundreds of times in the last year and a half. And so everyone knew me and this was a new guy who sort of just took over who clearly was a little more violent. And I was not happy with that. I'm like, you don't, how dare you pull a knife on anybody? That is not okay. It's just like, come on. So I was, I was pretty frustrated, but you know, we eventually left and did our, 
did the rest of the day, but it's a pretty cool video. <laughs> so, uh, is there a lot of violence or, or murders among the homeless? It's or just violence. Uh, I mean, murders happen, but there's a lot of violence in street justice. Right. Uh, um, you know, it's hard to prove a murder because for example, fentanyl back in the day, when I worked at homeless shelters, if a homeless person wanted to off another homeless person, they would inject them with heroin and then they would die of an OD. Right. Uh, now these days it's fentanyl because fentanyl is 10 times easier because I can even share with you, I had a client just a couple months ago who was completely sober and had zero interest in drug years. Someone put fentanyl powder in his drink and he died 20 minutes later. And uh, Do the police even look into it? They don't because think about it. A homeless junkie, I mean, it's just like, of course, it's a it, what they call it is not even suicide. It's accidental overdose. Now I come across people overdosing every single day, so I carry with me Narcan, which is the opioid blocker, because fentanyl has basically replaced all other drugs. But murders, I wouldn't say are common, but are not also uncommon. They're gonna happen, you know. I mean, but you know, my question is like when you find a person who's overdosed and died. We don't know how it, how they ended up in that situation because the fact is on the streets, there's a lot of infighting, there's a lot of drama, and there's almost no law and order. So these things kind of happen sometimes. I've personally been taken to grave sites in the middle of the woods in uh, uh, Portland, Oregon, that sh- you know where they showed me where you know the bodies are buried. It's like, you know, it usually it's in the deep, deep woods, you know, but it's not like they're always killed. Some died of natural causes and they decided to bury them in the woods because that's where they lived. So it's just hard to tell. But I mean, if we were ever to like do some kind of infrared thing throughout the country where there's homeless encampments where you can kind of tell if dirt, if there's been holes dug, you're going to find people buried everywhere, you know, especially in the deep woods. But, uh, yeah, it's just a tragedy, and this is why I'm really, you know, uh, set on trying to end this crisis because this is the stuff that will continue to happen until we do something. Okay. Um, do you want like, are, is there any anything that people that watch this like you want them to go to any links or anything like that? that we sure. In the description. Well, and I appreciate that, Matt. Um. I do have a website, truthonthestreets.org. Okay. And uh, also that's, you know, I uh, I have a good, uh, I, I do a lot of tweeting where I interview the homeless and talk about the crisis. And I've been doing this for a couple of years. And that's just my name, Kevin Dahlgren. Uh, and you can find me pretty easily on there. Uh, and of course, I write for Substack, which is an opportunity where I can write articles and share my 28 years working the system and kind of what I thought works and doesn't work, but I can send you all the links and stuff, Matt. And thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate you, you know, talking with me. Mm-hmm. This is great. Um, I, I follow you. I've listened to you. So this is a pleasure for me. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I appreciate that. Um, I was like, Whoa, 
I was I had to double I had to actually do a double guess. I was like, is there another Matthew Cox? Because I couldn't believe it was you. I was like, yeah. and I had to actually Google it thinking, well, I don't want to get excited because I wasn't sure. And I'm like, because I love watching podcasts. So I thought that's really cool, brother. Um, well, yeah, I appreciate that. Tyler, uh, you talk to uh, uh, Tyler. He's always suggesting, you know, different people. And that it, I mean, I, I keep telling him, you know, true crime, true crime, true crime. You know, that's what I need to stick with, true crime. Uh, but you know, we, we, we spoke and it seemed interesting and the, you know, that clip and I, I honestly, I'm surprised you haven't been harmed at this point going in and out of those places. I have, well, I've been harmed multiple times. Well, uh, I've been, uh, I, uh, um, you know, I still have, uh, the bruising of my bra- uh, br- brain bruising. I was, uh, in San Diego a few weeks ago and got beaten down really hard and I filmed the entire thing and um and it was brutal then I got kicked in the head I've been stabbed twice uh I've had I've been attacked multiple times I'm just kind of resilient but you know th- these things happen now of course the guy who attacked me I he was mad cuz I was filming him but I was only doing it because he was beating up another guy and I went over there in a very respectful way said please stop just stop, right? Because nobody else was doing anything. And this guy was weaker than him. And he was just, this guy ended up getting hospitalized for a week, right? So I just said, please stop. And I'm filming it. And this the, the victim was like, oh, thank you. And kind of stumbled away. And then this guy who was also really pumped, walked right up to me and just said, boom. And, I, and then I, I stood back up, punched me a second time. I stood back up. He punched me a third time, knocked me down and then got and kicked me. Now, I don't live in San Diego. I didn't know everybody there. So I also knew it wasn't wise at that moment to fight back because I don't know if he had something else on him or who his friends were because there was good 30 people there. So sometimes you have to sometimes just know when not to duck, you know, and when to take a punch. And so it wasn't like it was the, the, the way I painted is uh, I got off lucky because guess what? I got to go home. I got off lucky because I was just punched a few times and I'm recovering. But what about the people out there in the streets every day getting raped, getting murdered, getting beat up daily, every single day? That's what we got to be talking about. So I, I'm not, I'm definitely not the victim. I definitely got hit and getting hit is no fun. It's painful, <laughs> but I got to go home. They don't because the system isn't really set up to really help him in any real way. So that's all, all I want to say about that. Okay. Uh, do you have any, do you have that video? Yes. Oh, oh, oh it's in, uh, actually it's in that 18 minute documentary. So you'll okay. watch it. I'll, 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 I'll send you the link here in a minute. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. And share it. It's really cool. All right. Um, Absolutely. Hey, thank you guys for watching the video. Do me a favor. If you liked the video, subscribe to the channel, hit the bell so you get notified, leave a comment, and I'm going to leave all of Kevin's links in the description, including the link for the 18-minute documentary, um, his social media links. And so, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. See ya.